0: So you can enforce neural networks not to randomly prune neural networks, but if you say 50% of the weights, then you enforce neural networks to also remove 50% per layer, not only the last layer, but also the first layer, second layer. Then ultimately you could also um, get a lot of speed-ups. So that's like a spectrum. On one hand, you could give neural networks the ability to randomly prune. On the other hand, you can go for a structured sparsity and somewhere between, this is my hypothesis, and this is like recent trends in sparsity, that somewhere between has advantages of both sides, like generalization, which is a big advantage of unstructured sparsity, and also speed-ups for structured sparsity.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Austrian AI podcast with me, Manuel Paseka. Did you ever had the experience that you were training a network investing a lot of time in finding the right hyperparameters and testing different initializations to push the validation accuracy over a certain threshold? Only to then find out when putting the model in production that it significantly underperforms. Well, if you did, then you experienced one common problem with deep neural networks. The performance gap between in and out of distribution generalization. Today on the show PhD. Rahim Entezari is giving us a wonderful tour of his PhD journey investigating ways to understand and improve generalization performance of deep neural networks. Rahim will explain how one can improve generalization by different methods in either data or parameter space. We will discuss how using different forms of sparsity or efficient creation of deep ensemble networks by permutation of network configurations can improve generalization from a parameter perspective. Or from a data perspective, where we discuss how data quality and data diversity affects the generalization performance of modern deep neural networks. I hope you enjoy this interview, full of interesting concepts and ideas from deep learning theory. Hello, me again. Before we start with the actual interview, I want to try something new and add a new section in which I try to summarize and explain some of the concepts that are discussed in the episode. I do this because I receive the feedback that some of the more theory-focused interviews are difficult to understand and to follow for listeners that are not experts in the field. I hope the following summary and some of my thoughts on it will help to make it easier to follow the interview discussion rather than obfuscating it even further. I want to start to explain what in the intro I called in and out of distribution generalization. In distribution generalization is understood as a model's capacity to translate its performance on the training set to a validation dataset. It is standard practice to perform a training validation split of your data and to use the performance of a model on the validation set to guide or in particular decide when to stop training. This is done in part because we know that deep learning models have a high capacity to memorize the training data, in other words, overfitting. This overfitting would reduce in distribution generalization by reducing a model's performance on the validation set compared to the training set. And it's common practice to prevent this overfitting by early stopping. But what we really care about when training a model is its out of distribution performance. So it's performance on the data that is not available in any ways during training. This could be a special test set that was withheld during training, or the real-world data that a model is fed once it is in production. Reducing this gap between in and out of distribution generalization is what the different methods discussed in the interview are all about. These methods can be clustered in two groups. One of them focusing on the parameters of a model, and the other on the data that is used for training. In the camp of methods that focus on the parameters, we begin by discussing sparsity that reduces the number of parameters in the model. This is achieved by either reducing weights to zero, like with regularization methods like L1 or L2 norm, or by removing neurons, like with dropout. Another group of methods focusing on model parameters are deep ensembles, which are combinations of a set of trained models that improve generalization and outperform each individual solution. During the interview, we focus on Rahim's research in the field that enables the construction of those ensembles. For an ensemble to work, the particular solutions have to have two properties. On one side, they have to be functionally diverse. One can think about it like solutions that solve the same problem in different ways. And they have to reside in the same basis in the lossless landscape, which one can imagine, like all points being the same hole or the same valley and that there are no hills between the two. The other perspective on improving generalization is as we already said by looking at the training data. In particular we are discussing the balance between data quality and data quantity. I think that data quantity is easy to understand. But to be honest, it is still not completely clear to me what data quality means in this context. I am thinking about it in generic terms, like training data that is diverse, has little noise, and that we have a high confidence in its labels. We discuss how to balance the two for different training scenarios. Meaning that if you train a model and you have a certain training budget, do you spend the next thousand euros on either data quantity by getting as much new data as possible, by for example tapping into another unlabeled data source, or do you invest in data quality by investing into data cleaning and human data curation and annotation of your existing data? I believe that this part of the interview is particularly interesting as we discuss the balance between data quality and data quantity distinguishing between pre-training, so the training of new models, and fine-tuning, meaning the adjustment of already trained models, which is a common use case in practical applications. But having said this, I think I've said enough, and it's time to dive into the interview. Hello, Rahim. Thank you very much for coming on to the show.
0: Thank you, Manuel, for having me. It's a great pleasure to talk to you.
1: It's a great pleasure for me to have you on the show. We talked of my and we planned what we're going to talk about today. I think it's very interesting. We're going to talk about a lot of about generalization in machine learning, how to achieve this through The parameter space, half with data space, and a lot of interesting publications and research you have been doing during your PhD. But maybe before we go there, you can shortly for our listeners, give a bit of background about yourself, what motivated, what brought you into doing a PhD in this space and how you you ended up doing so.
0: Yeah, of course. So uh, I have started my PhD in 2019, but maybe before that, I did my Bachelor of Science and Master in Iran. Back in time for my Bachelor, I did on computer vision, computer engineering, specifically on hardware engineering. So that was a lot of electrical, electronics courses. Then for my Master, I decided to do more on artificial intelligence and robotics. Uh, Back in time, there was beginning of neural networks. So I didn't do much like into 2015 on neural networks, but more on graphical models for my master thesis. Mm -hmm. That might be interesting for, for the audience to know what was it about. So it was, my master thesis was on human gaze estimation. Because back in time, I was very interested in neuromarketing and that was heavily inspired by neuromarketing where gaze estimation has like interesting applications in neuromarketing. Mm-hmm. And then after that also did, yeah, I also did some years of internal experience before starting my PhD.
1: And just to get it right. So when you talk about gaze estimate, is this what you can sometimes see as well? Like in driver observability so where they check like in, in in a car where people are actually looking so if they're looking onto the road or if they look on the smartphone or if they have been falling asleep
0: yes this is exactly the case so there are basically two ways to best of my knowledge to estimate the gaze one is through eye like eye glasses which are very accurate but they are not very they are very expensive i would say and, on the other hand, there is another way which you just mentioned through like cameras, either smartphones or like third view cameras, mm-hmm. which we can use them in cars and they are not as accurate as eye gaze estimators, but they are much much cheaper mm-hmm. and My master thesis was about this kind of like camera based case estimation models
1: interesting, interesting. Cool. But then write your PhD, if understood correctly, there you quite made quite a shift and changed to, to very different topics. Can you can you start to talk us a little bit, a bit and, and talk us then through and about like the initial phases of your PhD?
0: Yeah, of course. Like, as I mentioned briefly, I started my PhD in 2019, where I am affiliated with two institutions. One is an Institute for Technical Informatics, the other one, based in Vienna, Complex Science Hub. And my background, as I mentioned before, is was on machine learning. And the institution for technical informatics was on embedded systems. So I thought that I would be better working on neural networks, machine learning, on embedded devices. There mm-hmm. I started like in 2019 to work on sparsity. That was the beginning of my PhD. I
1: see. Interesting. And we're going to definitely talk a bit more about like The goals for the things, but can you maybe give us an understanding as well when you talk about machine learning or in this particular case deep learning on embedded devices? What like what the state of affairs were back then and how they are currently? Because it's my understanding that it's it's there are definitely many industrial applications where one would be interested to be doing machine learning on embedded devices, but still it maybe much a niche, if is my understanding. And like even like about the supported tools and similar it's very challenging
0: yeah so why we can look into from an interesting viewpoint like why neural networks are a nice viewpoint to look from resource constrained devices because in iot domain which we know them as resource constrained mostly like raspberry Pis, smartphones we have access to tremendous amount of data which is interesting amazing for neural networks because neural networks are data hungry but on the other hand uh, Resource-constrained devices, at the name as the name suggests, they have constraints on their resources, like hardware. So on one hand, it's good to have a lot of data to have access to a lot of data because they mostly are constantly recording a lot of data at the edge. But on the other hand, we do not have enough resources to train or even infer test data. Uh, that's why it was very challenging and interesting to me back in time in 2019. So I thought that's um, at least back in time in 2019, or even now, we cannot do a lot of stuff on resource-constrained devices. But intrinsically, it was very challenging and interesting to me. That's why I started to work on deep learning on resource-constrained devices, to have voice-size of the pros and cons.
1: I mm-hmm. yeah, understand, makes sense. Can, as you already pointed out, like when you started out working in this space, You talk, you were working on sparsity, but if I understand it correctly, right? This is something like the topic of sparsity falls under one of two branches in many ways. We have been discussing of Mike about the topic of generalization that you're mostly interested in. Can you maybe for our listeners sketch out first, like a bit, like this is that which is going to be part as well of the interview about like a bit. What is generalization to the extent and that there are different ways how to approach it and the way that you have been working on doing your PhD before we maybe talk first about the one and then about the other?
0: Yeah, from a practical point of view, I was interested to make neural networks to work on resource-constrained devices, which sparsity came to mind. Like it's been there for a lot of like at least 20, 30 years. But from generalization point of view, it's also interesting to look at the sparsity. So if we look at bigger picture of generalization, I can divide it into mainly two parts. We can improve or look at generalization from parameter point of view, which sparsity is a subsection, or from data point of view. And these two viewpoints are heavily inspired and motivated, again, in IoT domain, because we need to have data efficiency on the edge and also parameter efficiency at DH. That's why I spent maybe two, three years of the first two, three years of my PhD on parameter efficiency of neural networks, which we can talk in detail, and the last year on data efficiency of neural networks.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: understand. Then everybody, if we said that, then let's start with following as well your procession in your PhD with the focus on parameter efficiency. And maybe we can start here by first, Talking about what is sparsity and what types of sparsity exist? Because as we talked before, before there's like structured and unstructured forms of sparsity, if understood correctly. Can you explain to our listeners then first, really what is sparsity? What is sparsity in the context of deep neural networks and like what these two different types of sparsity mean?
0: Yeah, of course. Maybe before going to a sparsity in detail, I can give an overview. Of what is parameter efficiency? Mm-hmm. Like sparsity is a subsection of parameter efficiency, but it, it but like parameter efficiency is not necessarily only a sparsity. So we have different methods to make neural networks efficient at the edge as we are talking about neural networks. One is the sparsity. The other may include quantizations, which is also very hot topic. Like in general view, it's about neural network compression. Sparsity is one way. The other one is quantization. The third one is knowledge distillation. And there are many other methods. Why sparsity was more interesting to me because it was tightly bounded to generalization. So it's been shown in the literature even before 2019 and 18 that sparsity could help generalization. And that was amazing for me because not only we could make neural networks work at the edge with resource constraints, but also potentially we could improve generalization at test set. That's Mm -hmm. why out of different methods to improve or to help compression at the edge, chose a sparsity. So like if you look at the literature it's been shown that like methods like L1 and L0 like regularizations could help generalization mm-hmm. and it's nothing but sparsity, right? In classical machine learning we had different methods of regularizations like lasso, L1, L2 which which totally helps machine learning problems not only neural networks but classical machine learning to improve generalization, to get better accuracies at tests.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Maybe one thing i already mentioned now, generalizations multiple times, just to make sure for our listeners as well, like what is really meant by generalization here? Because like I can remember that as well, when we were talking of Mike, that, that you and, This was actually new to me as well. And like, I'm still a bit unsure if I understand it. You make a distinction if understood correctly, between generalization and out of training data distribution. Is this correct? So a difference in the made between extrapolation, but standard and generalization. Can you, can you, can you explain us a little bit like what is really meant by generalization and like in which way generalization is different to it's out of training data distribution.
0: Yeah, I guess out-of-data distribution is a subsection of generalization. But generalization is opposed to optimization. So first, like informally, when we want to do as machine learning engineers, we split the data at hand. Whatever we have, at two points. One, we call it training set. The other rest, we call it hopefully validation or test set. And we hope that while we optimize and training set, then later if we test on a validation or test set, then we are not from we are not far from what we have learned during training. This is what we call in-distribution generalization. Because we already had some sort of data, no matter what the size is. We split it and we had a very big assumption that these two kind of splits are coming from the same data distribution. Mm-hmm. But Recently, we already noticed that this might be a false assumption because in the future, while testing the kind of data that we are facing might coming from another data distribution, which we call it out of distribution generalization. So generalization could be divided into in distribution generalization, out of distribution generalization from like bigger picture.
1: Mm-hmm. And just to get it then, sparsity, as you already described, is helping with this. Two Types of in and out of distribution generalization?
0: This is a very good question because I do not have an answer to that. Like um, what I know from literature is that sparsity totally helps in distribution generalization, which we call it in generalization for the last 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know that different kinds of regularizations like L1 and L2 and recent methods like lottery ticket helps generalization where we, where I would refer it to in-distribution generalization. So if we just split ImageNet or Cypher10 into two splits, we know that sparsity helps in in in-distribution generalization. But whether it helps for out-of-distribution, I'm not sure. I haven't checked recent literature, but that's a good question, research question to look for, to see if already sparsified neural networks already can get good out-of-distribution. I really don't know the answer. My hypothesis is that it might be helped.
1: Okay. And just to dumb it down again and to see this point. So if understood correctly, right, sparsity has been shown, has been shown that, that it helps with any kind of maybe introduced artifact through the training test split that you that could have been achieved. Like when you said you have your initial training data, you said, okay, you split it into a training part, you split it into a test and validation part. And that you make that sparsity helps definitely there, that the performance that you have on the training it transfers in many ways to the validation and testing phase. The in distribution generalization. And it might as well help with the out-of-distribution generalization when you then take your trained model, you put it into production, you use it in the real world, and as what in the best, in the in the best case, we hope that the performance that you have achieved on the test set mirrors the performance that you can see in the wild, at least as long as there's no data drift and anything else happening.
0: Yeah. That's right. Right. So, but what what it's, it's very hard to guarantee that this is going to happen in the future.
1: Mm -hmm. Of course. I see. But then perfect that we have clarified this bit more what we mean by generalization in this context and coming then back to sparsity, right. Um, we saw, we, as you already mentioned before, sparsity has been applied already in the past through linearization methods like L1, L2 norm, where you reduce as well, like the, the weights that you have in your network. So you you certain that exchange the structure. I would ex, I, I imagine as well, like to a certain extent, something like dropout as a generalization method as well, where you disable certain neurons and this forms are the form of sparsity. But I can remember as well that you made a distinction between unstructured and Structured sparsity. Can you just for our listeners as well clarify this a bit, and maybe see like what what difference does it make?
0: Yeah, of course. Like informally, sparsity means that we are going to get rid of some of the parameters of the machine learning model or neural networks in our case. But generally speaking, we can do this either through removing some weights, which we call it unstructured sparsity, or removing neurons or channels in CNNs. That's why we call it structured sparsity. So as the name suggests, unstructured refers to removing randomly, probably random weights through a millions of neural network weights. But the structured sparsity enforces some sort of a structure in removing such neurons or channels, which could be useful at, at the end, like in practice. Mm-hmm. And practically when we remove random weights of neural networks, we don't we really don't know where they are removed, like pruned sparsified. And that Mm -hmm. makes it hard for hardware to make use out of, make advantage out of these zeroing, zeroed, already zeroed weights. That's why people uh, in the community are towards structured versus unstructured sparsity, because both has pros and cons.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. And just of curiosity as well, because you already talked about hardware and like, as you said, like PhD was what's surrounding embedded devices. I know there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of work going on and having special devices optimized for deep learning tasks. And uh, there are definitely a lot of devices as well, which understood a go exactly for sparse calculations. Do you know those, by any chance, those devices as well? are they focused on one of the two? So either like on focused on unstructured sparsity, as you said, like weight sparsity to some extent or structured in neuron sparsity?
0: Yeah, I can make some examples out of this. (coughs) Before going to make to to those examples, maybe I should emphasize on chronological point of view, sparsity, structured versus unstructured. Mm -hmm. Like, as I mentioned, classical machine learnings was working towards unstructured sparsity, which is L1 and L2. Later, maybe in 2015, people tried their best to make it work for neural networks, again, on unstructured sparsity, which at some points they showed that it also helps generalization, even for neural networks. But later, like the pros, the advantage for unstructured sparsity was that we could remove a lot of weights without Without making any problem for accuracy, like you can get up to 99 maybe or even more zeroing weights without reducing accuracy at some point, which there has been a lot of methods in unstructured sparsity. Mm -hmm. Recently, maybe during the last five years, people noticed that it doesn't help us in terms of speed up. So that was the big disadvantage of unstructured sparsity. So people tend to, like recently, to use structured sparsity, which was not very useful or heavily underserved for GPU utilization. That's why recently p- people are more towards structured sparsity or even better combining structured and unstructured sparsity. So recently some GPUs, architectures like NVIDIA and they try to enforce some sort of uh, structure in unstructured sparsity. Mm-hmm. So with unstructured sparsity, as I previously mentioned, there is this random pruning. So it could be in the first layer or last layer you could enforce some sort of uh, structure through your loss function to to incentivize neural networks to also in, enforce sparsity in the first layers rather than for last layers and if you enforce such a sparsity then for nvidia period they, they can use make advantage out of this prior knowledge to make it faster and faster not only for test but also for training neural networks i see so maybe One detail on why unstructured sparsity is not best for speed up that might be intuitive for audience, but it was not at the beginning for me Mm -hmm. is that if you just let the neural network to decide um, on what weights to prune. Let's say I want to get rid of half of the neurons in neural networks. Then intrinsically neural networks is incentivized to get rid of half of these neurons at the end layers. Because there are many, many layers, like many, many weights at the like last layers. If you have fully connected 1,000 by 1,000, it's only 1 million weights in the last layer. Right, mm-hmm. the fully connected layer. While for the first layer, you have kernels like three by three, five by three, five by five in CNNs. So neural networks, if it was, if it is up to neural networks, then they will get rid of neural a lot of weights at the last layer. So it's good to to get rid of a lot of neurons. But while testing, because you have this three by three small kernel in the first layer, which you haven't pruned, then while testing in inference then you have this small kernel going like on a big image, which makes it a lot of complicated, like a lot of multiplications need to be done, a lot of additions need to be done. So you didn't prune the first layer, but the last layer. But mm-hmm. if you enforce such, enforce such a structure in unstructured sparsity by changing the, let's say the loss function to also like per layer structure, let's say, that's one heuristic. So you can enforce neural networks not to randomly prune neural networks, but if you say 50% of the weights, then you enforce neural networks to also remove 50% per layer, not only the last layer, but also the first layer, second layer. Then ultimately, you could also get a lot of speed-ups. So that's like a spectrum. On one hand, you could give neural networks the ability to randomly prune on the other hand, you can go for a structured sparsity and somewhere between, this is my hypothesis, and this is like recent trends in sparsity, that somewhere between has advantages of both sides, like generalization, which is a big advantage of unstructured sparsity and also speed-ups for a structured sparsity.
1: Mm-hmm. I see. Interesting. And just maybe to verify if this is correct as well, like the lot of discussion that has been going on over the last years of, for example, the... Lottery, hardware lottery hypothesis, where you focus on sub networks with very similar performance as much bigger networks. This, to some extent, can imagine someone as a structured sparsity in the network. Is this correct?
0: Um, no, lottery ticket is doing more on unstructured on sparsity, I would say. There are recent methods which try to change lottery ticket towards sparse, like structured sparsity, but at the beginning it was. Unstructured sparsity. But uh-huh. so there okay. are many methods to, to enforce unstructured sparsity. The simplest or maybe the most known method is magnitude pruning, which lottery ticket was based on that. Okay. So maybe more background on sparsity, how it was through time. So like 10 before lottery ticket and after lottery ticket, because it was really a well-known paper and it changes a lot of viewpoints towards sparsity. Like before lottery ticket hypothesis, people tend to, let's say we, we want to use magnitude pruning. Before mm-hmm. lottery ticket, people tend to prune neural networks at one shot. Let's say we want to get rid of 50% of the neurons. They train it, they initialize the neural network, train it until convergence. And then in the third step, they get rid of these 50% of neural, neurons. And later they decided to also retrain or fine tune neural network. That was before lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. So what we did with what is Left after pruning is to continue training. That was before lottery ticket. But what lottery ticket did is like an iterative process. Like you could train your neural networks and then remove 50% of the neur- neurons. And then the question is that what to do with what is left? So I have now 50% left. What should I do with that? Mm-hmm. Before, before lottery ticket, then people try to continue training. But what lottery ticket suggests was to rewind what is left to earlier epochs in training? In the first version of lottery ticket, they refer to initialization. So let's rewind back on what is left to epoch zero mm-hmm. initialization, and later they find out it's not true. Maybe we can rewind it to epoch one, epoch two, or later iterations, and that is very related to what we are going to discuss with last land escape in the mm-hmm. next few minutes. Very
1: interesting. Nice. Um- then let me see if we then already have an overview about sparsity. As you said, like we distinguish here between unstructured sparsity and structured sparsity, focusing on the weights, focusing on disabling individual neurons. And as you said, like having on one side an improved generalization of the networks and on the other side, having like the reduced computational needs in order to be on site training and as well, like inferencing, running inference on those networks. And as you already said, besides this type of sparsity as well, there are other aspects, like for example, like the lost landscape that, that <clears throat> work in the parameter space. C- can you, can you maybe talk a bit, a little bit about this? And as well as I know that you have been doing publications in this area, maybe give us a little bit of overview of what you have done there.
0: Yeah. So from sparsity to lost landscape, that was also my question, along with other people at the community that why such methods like lottery tickets helps improve improving generalization like as i mentioned previously briefly that back in time we need to we had to look at what happens in the last landscape in the parameter space so of course we we need to get rid of some of the neurons but what does it mean it needs to be does does it necessarily mean that we are going to have Flatter space in the last landscape, narrow space in the last landscape, what does it mean actually? Like maybe before, so there are two, we are looking at one problem from two viewpoints.
1: Mm-hmm. One
0: is a sparsity, which helps generalization. But the, on the other hand, we know it from literature that the flatter, the better in terms of lost landscape. So we know that like methods like L1, L2 drop out, as you mentioned, helps reducing overfitting, which mm-hmm. means that we are going for flatter loss landscape, the flatter the better. If we look at basins at the loss landscape, which I can informally look at them like bowels like in the loss landscape, then we know that if they are sharp, then that's not good while testing because any kind of perturbations can get the, the ultimate solution, the local minima that we already found out of this sharp value. So, People observe that the sparsity helps generalizations because it enforces some sort of flatness through the lost landscape. Like in 2020 and 2021, I was also interested in understanding the lost landscape from a sparsity point of view. That's why I shift from sparsity to understand the lost landscape shape. Again, these two are tightly bounded, like sparsity, lost landscape, from parameter point of view in generalization.
1: Mm hmm. Makes sense. Just to clarify here as well, like for our listeners here, when we talk about the loss landscape, and as you said, like the smoothness to many ways of the loss landscape, this only refers to the point that when you have a trained network, for some extent, right, you are pos- you are at one specific position in the loss landscape, right? And in many ways, the visualization is right that you can really have like a physical landscape and then some way the height is like in many ways the performance that you that you achieve. And as you already pointed out, right, if you have a very lost and not smooth loss landscape, meaning that you could have very different, with slightly moving in this space, so slightly different changes of the, of the weights in your network. Suddenly your performance is, is is much worse, meaning that like if you then go out and have, for example, a real world data that you run on that you might, in this one, have a very bad, worse performance than you expect on your, on your on when training it. But when you, as already said, when you have a very smooth, the landscape, you have the benefit of like, if the, the in the distribution that you're inferring on is slightly different than your training distribution, your expectation is that the performance is very similar.
0: Yeah. This is much better. Well said than I said, thank you.
1: Thank you. And then as you already said, like, then can you explain to us a bit more exactly what you found then looking at this, at the loss landscape and what it impact to some extent, really able to extrapolate from this on generalization.
0: Yeah. So looking into lost landscape from a sparsity point of view was really hard for us. Like when I decided to work with people at Google, I approached them like simply that this is my hypothesis. Sparsity helps generalization. And that's why, because it flattened the list, lost landscape. Let's look into like in more details. But at some point we we had some observations through different papers, which we didn't know what is the source. Is it because of the sparsity or is it because of many, many parameters in the last landscape? So we, so there are two impacting factors at the same time. So that's why I decided for a second for the next couple of minutes. Mm-hmm that's let's remove sparsity from the lost landscape. Let's look only on the lost landscape shape, what's impacting factors shapes the lost landscape. And then we can again add sparsity at later points. So what I did in 2021, I guess, was to look at the shape of the lost landscape. One simple question was that how many basins do we have in the lost landscape? How many valleys can i visualize for let's say vgg trained on cifar10 is it 10 20 1 million why not more why less and mm-hmm. what's the so what impacts the the number of basins for example that was the basic idea of our paper the role of permutation invariance in neural networks
1: mm-hmm. and i will include it definitely in the show notes but just to understand as well, like the investigation that you have been performing there, do understand correctly, you said that you took a particular network, you took a particular training set, and you observed exactly, you mapped this lost landscape.
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: And what did you change? What are the things, the variables that you were looking into to see what effect did they have on the lost landscape? And maybe one other thing that I want to ask again, you know, mapping this loss landscape, you did on, let's say, on a mere, on a bit of a global level. So you looked at the, at the complete loss landscape, not necessarily focusing on the, the, the how well or how smooth the loss landscape close to the solution was that, that you found or like when the model, um, stopped training.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, so to answer this question, maybe it's it's better to, to take a few steps back and look into making ensembles in neural networks. So, as I mentioned during my PhD, I was very focused on making neural networks to work on resource-constrained devices. And on resource-constrained devices, we already know from the literature ensemble learning helps generalization. And in resource-constrained devices, the way to do ensembling is to, to do this by weight averaging. Mm-hmm. So if I want to make an example, let's say I have a Cypher 10 classification problem, 10 classes. And ensembling means that we have different models already trained on, let's say, VGG trained on Cypher 10. And averaging the weights means simply I have three models for each weights for each layer. Let's make the average out of three, four 10 models, mm-hmm. which is possible through the uh, resource constrained devices. However, there, there has been a lot of efforts in the literature to make it work. So to make it, to make an ensemble work, we need two requirements to be met at the same time. First, we need these three models to, to form an ensemble to be functionally diverse. And then second, these models should reside in one basin. Why is that so? So the first requirements to be, to have functional diverse is a requirement because if all models are looking at the same problem from the same point of view, it doesn't make any sense to make them in one basin, like in, in, in an ensemble, right? We need to look at the same problem from different viewpoints. That's an informal intuition why we need to have functional diverse solution. And the second requirement says that these solutions should reside in one basin. Why? Because if they are not residing in one basin, then simply averaging them would end up in high loss, right? You can close your eyes and set that, like, we ha- I have two VGG solutions. Each of them are residing in two different basins in the last landscape. And then if I simply average them, the average would reside somewhere between, right? Mm-hmm. And in between would reside in high in mountains in last landscape, not in a valley. That's why we need this different solutions of an SGD, like VGG trained on C410, to reside in one base. So these are two important requirements to make an ensemble work in resource-constrained devices, in weight averaging. But there, are, there has been, yeah.
1: And just just to verify if I understood it correctly, the terminology here, when you talk about being in the same basis, then you mean like naively, meaning it means there's in the same look. In the local space, in the loss space? In many ways, in the best case, in, in the same local minima?
0: Yeah, th- there are different formal definitions for what is a basin. But informally, you can say that two different local minimas that we found are in the same basin if they are connected to each other linearly, which means that if I just start from one of them, walk until I get to the second one by linear interpolation between them, then I do not go up and down. Do not, I do not face going up and mountain and then going down. This is what we call it to be in the same base. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned previously, there are many related works that try to make these two requirements at the same time, right? Functionally diverse solutions and in the same base. Maybe the most well-known example is a stochastic beta averaging in the literature, which does this like simply again, back to our example. I have VGG and C410. The stochastic beta averaging says that Let's train it until convergence. Let's say I have 100 epochs on VGG on CIFAR-10. SWA says that let's save the last five epochs and then make an ensemble out of these last five epochs. It's good because now this, the last five epochs are now in the local neighborhood. They are now in the same basin. But the problem for stochastic weight averaging is that its five solutions that we are going to get average are not functionally diverse. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they already started from one initialization, right? That was the most famous, well-known example of making ensembles, the stochastic weight averaging. Mm-hmm. There has been other words, just maybe interestingly enough, Lottery Ticket also shows that if we have two different SGD solutions, like let's say I have two... VGGs initialize randomly and then train them until convergence. If I just linearly interpolate between these two solutions, then it's good that they are functional diverse because they already started from differentialization. But the problem is that, as I mentioned before, these are residing in two different basins, which means that if I just linearly interpolate between them, then I will end up in high mountains, not in a valley. Mm-hmm. And there, we had a simple question with this paper, the rule of permutation. Is that possible to make these two requirements at the same time? Like to have functional diverse solutions and they are in the same basin? Because previously they, it shouldn't, it couldn't be shown that it is possible. Mm-hmm. And we showed it in the paper, yes, it is possible. If we take into account the, the symmetries of neural networks. And a special case of symmetries in neural networks is permutation invariance of neural networks.
1: Can you, our listeners as well, explain this a bit more when you talk about the symmetries in neural networks? Yes, what what are you referring to here exactly?
0: Like, as I mentioned, like permutation is an example of symmetry. Like, what do I mean by permutation? So if you have a feed-forward neural networks, let's say, which has MNES as input, one hidden layer, and one output, and this hidden layer has only three neurons, let's say. Then because this is a fit for neural networks and it's, let's say the activation is relu, then you can change these three, the position of these three neurons with six different um, positions, right? So because it's three factorial, six different combinations. So mm-hmm. you can simply change the, the position of these three neurons, which means that you can simply change the rows of the previous layers and columns of the last layer, right? And. It's important to note that this doesn't change the function because mm-hmm. it's a relu network. If you change the positions of the first and second column, then you have this multiplication of input and this matrix. You already change it, the first and second row. And then you have relu. So because multiplication doesn't change, right? And you have this relu. So what is left before zero would be zero. And after zero, it's y equal to x. That's relu network, right? Then mm-hmm. you need to take care of the change of the first and second column in the consecutive layer also. If you do this, then this doesn't change the function. So one example of symmetries in neural networks is permutation, which is simply changing the positions of the neurons or channels in CNNs. You could simply do this. And one question that we had was that, what happens if we do this? So we know that if we have a VGG trained on C 410 10, which gets 99 percent of accuracy on test sets, if we change this permutation, if you apply this permutation, it is still gets this 99% of accuracy, right? But what does it mean in the last landscape? Does it, where does this SGD solution go? It probably changes the basin. So it goes to another basin, right? But where does it go? It goes to, to where? Mm-hmm. And that was the question that we had. We call this a symmetry, right? Because if we just apply this permutation, this local minima that we found goes to another space in the neural network. But they are symmetry of each other. These are exactly one solution, but they are mm-hmm. symmetric to each other. So they have, does both has, they, they both has the same accuracy, has the same functionality, but they are now in different space in the last land.
1: Mm-hmm. I understand. And as you already said, like doing this study that, that you combined this then, if I understood correctly, if you said with sparsity, so to study what the effect Of sparsity was then on the smoothness of the landscape or did I misunderstand this?
0: The motivation for this work was sparsity because we wanted to enforce such ensembles, right? And ensembles are motivated by sparsity and resource constraint devices. Mm -hmm. For the sake of this paper and looking at the linear mode connectivity and permutation invariance, we didn't look into the sparsity pattern. So we just for a second, we paused the sparsity research Mm-hmm. And we looked into dense network. Like, let's train VGGs, different VGGs, two different random initializations, and look how they are connected through the last landscape. Are they linearly connected? They are not linearly connected. If we apply permutation, what happens in their connectivity in the last landscape? Last landscape, and what does it mean in terms of generalization?
1: Mm-hmm. And the outcome of the paper then was a
0: very big conjecture which says that all SGD solutions reside in one base. So that was a very big hypothesis, which we call it the conjecture, that if you train different neural networks randomly, independently, then you can find permutation between each two pairs of such local minima. And if mm-hmm. you apply such permutations, then they will all end up in one base. And that was a very big conjecture because ultimately you can average all of these SGD solutions, right? Now mm-hmm. you have, Different SGD solutions, which are independently trained, which means that they are functionally diverse on one hand. And on the other hand, now they are ending up in one basin, which makes it possible to average them. And that was proven through lots of experiments, around 4,000 different experiments of different neural networks, different architectures, data sets, and also through theory.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Looking at the time, I think, as well, like what I really wanted to cover as well as like what well, is your other alternative to improve or to look at generalization, which beyond the parameter space was looking as well in the data space, and I think maybe we should shoot the shift now, as you said, like looking at the time so. Can you, for our listeners then, the benefit to, as we have talked now about the parameter space and the option that we have there for structured, unstructured sparsity, as you said, in your more recent work as well, can you give our listeners an understanding of what does it mean when when you talk about, in many ways, approaching the topic of generalization through data instead of for parameters?
0: Yeah. So if you look at the literature, so for the last 10 years, people tend to make a lot of architectures going for bigger and bigger. But recently, at least for the sake of GPT 2018 and 19 onwards, people also notice that data is also very important. Not only the quantity of the data, but also the quality of the data. Mm-hmm. So back in time, like three, four years ago, people, like at least OpenAI case, tends to go for larger models in the parameter space and also billions of samples to train let's say GPT-3 and recently they noticed that also quality matters however it's not yet clear what which one is more important like quantity versus quality if i have enough resources let's say if i have 1 billion dollar which one should i invest that's a like 10 billion or 100 billion dollar question mm-hmm. and i really don't know the answer i guess nobody knows the answer and that was why i was I'm interested for the last year of my PhD to work also on the data efficiency of neural networks. So let's forget about parameter efficiency for a second. Mm-hmm. Let's say I already fixed my architecture to Resnets or Transformers, and now focus for a second which type of data sets are better to solve my task. And that is tightly bounded to pre-training, transfer learning, and a lot of research on the roof of data efficiency.
1: Mm-hmm. And can you maybe as well, like describe a bit, when we talk about, as you already said, like the, on one side, you have the discussion is about like quantity and on the side of the quality of the data. When, when we talk of those aspects, what are the aspects of, of data that, for example, in to some extent, like quality focused, because like on, on one side I can, um, this is for, for human rights, it may to some extent, easy to understand when you talk about natural language, and then then we we look at things like, for example, uh, when things are just grabbed from the internet, and uh, there might be a lot of text which is a ones that sort of repetitive. So this goes a bit in, like this is like the lack of diversity in the data, or data is too similar. Uh, but like, what are some of the aspects that d- make data more qualitative for training, and how? Uh, it's already said, like how. Yeah, how how could to some extent can you measure and and define this?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question, which I do not have answer for that. I guess there are lots of measures in the literature, but nobody can show how to trade off between quantity and quality. Mm -hmm. Like maybe um to answer this question more clearly, I need to take some steps back and look why people in the literature notice the the importance of quality Mm -hmm. of the data versus quantity. People tried a lot to improve generalization for the last 10, 20 years. And then at some points, there was this clip paper by OpenAI, which was the first paper that could reduce the generalization gap. What is generalization gap? So you can imagine a plot where on the x-axis is in distribution generalization and the y-axis is out of distribution generalization. So people in the literature trained millions of neural networks with different parameters and data sets. If you just scatter plot a lot of these papers on this plot that I just briefed, so you see that you hope that in practice they follow the y equal to x axis line. But in practice it's not it's not the case. So they lie below this y equal to x, which we call it generalization gap. So the gap between in distribution and out of distribution. So back to the beginning of our discussion. Recently, people noticed that it's very important to also generalize to what we have not seen in the future, which we refer to out of distribution. That's why this generalization gap was very important. So people try to improve or reduce this generalization gap, but in, by including more data. Like people at Google, if I'm not mistaken, they were, or in Meta, they they were including 1,000x more data. So let's mm-hmm. say, instead of Training on ImageNet for the last 10 years, let's train on 1 million data points, either on computer vision scenarios or on NLP. So going for more and more. But still, they observed that they couldn't reduce this generalization gap. So still, it was around, let's 10, 12% between ImageNet, in-distribution generalization, and out-of-distribution ImageNet. What is the out-of-distribution ImageNet? There is this ImageNet version 2 data set. They simply trained ImageNet models on the x-axis, let's say 85% of accuracy. And when they test it on out-of-distribution, which is this ImageNet version 2 or ImageNet A, ImageNet R, these are different samples for out-of-distributions of of ImageNet. And instead of 85, where they were hoping to get out of y-axis, they get 70 or 75, which was Mm -hmm. 10%, 15% of generalization gap. Mm -hmm. So even if they tried it to train on 1 million more samples, it was It was no less than 10%. But then there was this clip paper which showed that we could reduce this generalization gap up to, let's say, 5%, if I'm not mistaken. So that was a big step towards out-of-distribution generalization and maybe future of AI. That was a big step, really big step in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Then people noticed that it is important to look at the clip paper. And what is special about clip paper? They used transformers. They also used contrastive loss. And they also emphasize on the quality and quantity of the data. So there were three, let's say, culprits behind the the backstage of the improving the generalization. Which one was the winner? If it was because of the contrastive learning, or if it was because of more data or better quality of the data, or even using transformers. Mm -hmm. And like one year later, or like in 2020, I guess 22, there was this ICML paper from University of Washington, Alex Fang and Ludwig Schmidt. They showed that quality matters a lot. Like the data distribution was the success factor behind the CLIP success. Mm -hmm. And that's since then, people try to focus more and more on the quality and quantity of the data because CLIP was the best example to reduce this generalization gap. Mm
1: -hmm. And very interesting. And, and obviously, like, it makes a lot of sense, as you said, like bridging this gap between your test performance and your real world performance, which is obviously essential for anything in production for like any, say, application of your system. If you want to go beyond, you're pushing the limits uh, for, for some publications. But can you then already asking this before, then say, then say, in this particular case, when they were studying, for example, or it's like net or similar. What, what was it really translating to when you talk about improved quality of training data? Is this because really the, the individual training points are to some extent more diverse? They, they, they have different distributions or like they, they cover like the possible space of in the sense pictures in a better way than, than the, the other parts of the training data? Or wh- what are we referring to here? Yeah.
0: These are all true. So there is a nice paper, diversity versus affinity by people at Google, which they try to quantify what what, what is important with respect to data augmentation. So in a nutshell, we need a data set to train on, which helps us while testing the real world. And this means that we, we, have, we need to have diversified data sets, more data points, to look at our task from different viewpoints. Of course, more data, like more data doesn't necessarily mean to, to have better data or diversified, but that's the hope. That's why we recently going for million scales to billion scales of data. So quality is not necessarily going for quantity, but there, these are tightly bounded. Of course, if we crawl the whole internet, we have a lot more data and a lot more noisy data. That's why we need a lot of more parameters. Like in transformers, we also go for billion escape. But we hope that if we crowd the whole internet for GPT, let's say four, then we also go for quality. But it's very hard to define what is quality. So informally, we say that the better data means um, better understanding of what's going on there. Like if you have an image, you, you could have a noisy caption, which describes the history of the image or a clean caption, which really describes the, what is happening in the image. Both are captions on the, on the internet. So if you crawl Wikipedia, there are lots of images with a lot of captions. Some are more noisy, but some are much more cleaner. And it's been shown in the literature that the cleaner, the better. But on the other hand, if you have more data, but no, less, like more noisier data, it might be better. That's what we discussed in our paper with Ludwig Schmidt at University of Washington.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, the thing as well, like this hits and part as well, like on uh, one of your publications as well, like to understand this this balance between quantity and quality. What role and how much does this change between pre-training and like fine-tuning of models, right? Is it like the very So something from my perspective, the practical approach is, as we said, right, you have some kind of pre-trained model. This hopefully has been trained on a lot of data. And then, right, for your practical view, you pick it up, you fine-tune it on your available data, which normally is obviously much smaller. But then again, right, it's more focused on the task that you actually want to solve. And then the practical question to some extent is... If I, for example, and it's a very practical question, pick up such a pre-trained model and try to think about like what training data like feed it to do fine tuning. To some extent, can, can we say a bit about, as again, again, is there the, is it there maybe a bit clearer, the, the balance between general, between quality and quantity? Is it there a bit easier maybe to say that, okay, instead of focusing on getting, uh, as you said, one fa- having one million euros, putting it like um, collecting a lot of data, so quality, quantity, or maybe is it better to, to focus on quality doing something like fine tuning?
0: Yeah, so fine tuning is heavily inspired by literature. We know that like practical, from practical example, I am ha- a data engineer. I have a task to solve. I have to solve it. I have different options, either to train from scratch, but the problem is that practically, I do not have examples to, to train from scratch. That's why we go for pre-training and fine-tuning. But as you just mentioned, I have a lot of options to pre-train on. So I can go to Hugging Face, download a lot of models. And in this paper, we are trying to answer which models are better for our pre-training. So even a fixed target task that I'm going to solve, let's say medical domain example, I have different options from hugging face. Should I choose supervised or should I choose semi supervised pre-training? Should I choose training on lots more noisier data? Let's say Wikipedia 5 million or 10 million, or should I use ImageNet, which is much, much more cleaner? Mm-hmm. Okay. So these are the kind of questions that we are going to answer in this paper. And if I just want to talk more about this paper, mm-hmm. Please. Um, I can, I can give you an overall view. So. The, the short answer is, as always, it depends. And like, I can give you, depends on how many examples do you have on your target task. If you do have a lot of examples on your target tasks and it's still training from scratch is not an option, then it's not important to which training or which checkpoints you choose from hugging face. So which wasn't clear before our paper. Mm-hmm. So if you have, let's say, that's a rule of thumb. If you have 500 samples per class, which we call it 500 shots, or even less, maybe 200, 300 shots per class, then you are good to go. You, you do not need to worry about which pre-training checkpoints you choose from hugging face. But if you are working on few-shot regime, which, which is a special case, especially if you go to medical imaging tasks, you have one or maybe five or 10 images per class, Mm -hmm. then it is really important which pre-training data set or which pre-training checkpoints you choose from hugging face. And intuitively, Mm -hmm. the better pre-training is the one which is closer to your target task in terms of maybe visuality. So if you go for, so there is this target task in computer vision, which we call it, sorry, I do not recall them. Yeah, the pets. So the pets is, Well-known example out of computer vision tasks. So if you have a pet target task classification, then it's better to go for ImageNet because it has a lot of dog breeds. So if I'm not mistaken, there are 200 200 classes out of 1,000 classes of images are from Mm -hmm. dogs. So if you are going to distinguish between different pets in your target or fine-tune task, then you are better go for the data distributions which are closer. This goes to when you are going to have few shots regime. But if you go to for full shot, which is more than 200, 300 samples per class, no matter what the pre-training checkpoints you choose, you are always getting almost the same accuracy.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. I mean, this is definitely a very practical recommendation then, I think, then it's sort of like uh, makes it easier for people. Decide where to invest the resources, because if I understood correctly, like then if you're on a practical domain, then it's it's worth to to maybe extend your fine-tuning training set to expect to get several hundred examples per class, if possible, instead of maybe then investing in like evaluating uh, for uh, trained models to do so.
0: Exactly right. If you have enough resources to label your fine-tune task to to get it more and more, then you are maybe a better strategy is to do so. But if you do not, for for any reason, have resources, have access to such samples, then it's it totally worse to look at your examples, like visually and look at pre-training different choices. Maybe an image net or a supervised pre-training is better for your case. Maybe semi-supervised or weekly supervised pre-training data sets like Lion, for example. We have. Different versions of Lion from 10 million to now, recently, 5 billion samples. Mm-hmm. Then you can go for Lion for image and text pairs and then fine tune your target data distribution. Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. And looking at the clock, I think, or moving towards the end of the interview, I think it would still be interesting to know, like, what your future goals are in this area. And if you're beyond your personal research goals, what do you think, where, does, where are the, as the research going at the moment, like thinking about generalization? As we said, we talked about parameter space. We talked about data to some extent. Uh, what is your personal research and code looks like and what you think like what is happening outside of this as well?
0: Yeah. So what, what we already discussed is still hot topic. So what does it mean if we go for more and more parameters? To what extent we can scale GPT? Like as a side note, we do we really do not know how much parameters do GPT-4 has, and and on the data side also we do not ha- know what kind of data is good for our case. Like GPT-4, do they go for billion much more data, or do they go for more cleaner data, higher quality regions? Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting to combine these two subsections out of generalization. So. Let's look, maybe I can make one example, what is interesting for me, maybe in the next six months, Mm -hmm. is to look at connectivity of different solutions with respect to different also data sets. So Let's say I have different SGD solutions already trained on different data sets. And let's look how they are residing in the last landscape. This kind of solutions, right? In the literature, they already looked at parameter space or from data space. We can combine these two viewpoints to maybe understand the neural networks. That's my main goal, to understand Mm -hmm. why neural networks work, why they do not work, at which extreme cases they do not work. That's my bigger goal for the next few years, hopefully.
1: I see. Very nice. Well, with this, aim, I want to thank you very much coming on to the show i think uh, this has been very interesting and definitely wish you the best of luck going forward as well like uh, working in the space and investigating better understanding uh, the benefit of us all like how deep neural networks work and how to improve the generalization capabilities
0: thank you manuel thank you for having me and thank you for all the listeners to to our podcast together so we discussed a lot of topics and I really hope that you enjoyed it and hopefully that could help all of us to understand neural networks or machine learning in more details
1: great thank you
0: thank you